Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Where our goal is to make politics more accessible and less intimidating. The show features an interview with an expert in the political field, walking us through the many cues we have about politics, civics, government, and more. By providing civic education in the places we are, on our phones, and in the language we speak. <laughs> yes, we know, we say like a lot. It's kind of the point, because politics needed a rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Happy Wednesday. And you know I'm grinning ear to ear right now on this day. There is so much pearly white action happening. It's beyond. I just, I was just texting Maddie guys, like 5 million texts in a row, blowing up her phone like nobody's business. Like, okay, sealed indictment. Trump indicted. Okay, wait, the charges are coming. Like a kind of like a play-by-play. And then there was like a lot of confusing headlines as this was going on. Because I think, you know, all the news outlets were updating and whatever. And not only did I almost confuse the shit out of all of us, but I just, I might've broken Maddie's phone at this point, but we have some news. No, it was needed. It was needed because yeah, more news broke. We have another Trump indictment on our hands and trading the orange skin for the orange jumpsuit, like make it into merch. It's happening because we manifested this. Sure did. It is wild. Okay. I have a few different avenues that we need to go down, a few different rabbit holes, but to lay lay the land. Lay the land. Lay it. Lay it down. (laughs) So this is what rolled through. I'm giving like a little timeline moment from NBC News because this, I have to say, of all the news stories that I popped into was just the most cohesive. So mazel to them. Thank you, NBC News. You guys did a great job. So- A sealed indictment had been handed down against former President Donald Trump in the grand jury investigation of his attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Because classic. So that happened. First, I was like, oh, my God. And then second to that, I was curious what a sealed indictment was. So for everyone's edification, I did Google this. And a sealed indictment means the grand jury process is conducted in secret and the criminal charges have not been made public. So. At first, we're seeing this. We're like, oh, my God, okay, there's an indictment, but like against two and what are the charges? And then there was an update, a glorious, glorious update. Trump has been charged with four counts. I like how this is my, I don't even know what to call this, my dance move with it. Four counts. So conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to obstruct the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Conspiracy to impede the January 6th congressional proceeding, mm-hmm. a conspiracy against the right to vote and to have the vote counted, mm-hmm. and obstruction of an attempt to obstruct and impede the certification of the electoral vote. Oh, here he is. Spicy, beautiful, gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. So members of the grand jury met at the courthouse earlier today, which was Tuesday, August 1st. Obviously, you guys are listening to this on August 2nd, middle of Leo season here. But nonetheless, that's when this was all happening. Trump announced earlier in July, July 18th, that he'd received a letter from 
special counsel Jack Smith notifying him that he was the target of a grand jury examining the January 6th riot in the 2020 election, which is just interesting because he's like always spewing something on Truth Social or wherever, and then obviously gets picked up everywhere else anyways about like what's going to happen. And funny enough is earlier today, he gave like a preemptive warning that he was getting indicted later today. Mm -hmm. So honestly, like gotta, gotta like give compliments to the chef. Like, thanks for the warning. Thanks for letting us know we should clear our schedule for a little celebratory, you know, sweet foray, a charcuterie board of like cheesy happiness. I don't know. I was going to say, I best things that might just, I might have to open a bottle of wine tonight. I have some furniture I, to, to assemble. I might just, you know, pour myself a glass and have a little evening because, wow. First of all, Jack Smith just sounds hot, first of all. Second of all, it just seems like such a long time coming. It's like been two plus years of being like, what the fuck just happened about January 6th? And being like, is this just gonna we're just moving on like you know is this just gonna be another event in our little unprecedented events cycle so to see this start to come full circle is it feels good and it's it's just so needed because it's like let's not forget this dark day and let's make sure there's accountability and there's there's been accountability with individual rioters and all the things insurrectionists but to see kind of this accountability at the top is feels feels very comforting to know that even a former president you know can be indicted and be held accountable potentially for you know inciting an insurrection and a potential coup on our government so with that i, agree with I yield that. It's my a, time back it's a Thank you. This has been an excellent hearing. No, it, it's definitely like kind of like a fuck around and find out moment and in a very positive sense. I mean, obviously negative that we ever got to this point in our democracy, like that we're here, but positive in the sense that accountability is being taken at least more degree than I ever thought was going to happen personally, like not to yeah. be the negative Nance, but like I just, I had my doubts, unfortunately, based off so many other things that I think too, that we saw during the Trump presidency. And I think to me, what I like always take away from it is just that it really highlighted so many areas where like we didn't have things backstopped and how many holes there were. And Mm -hmm. like, it really just opened up a pile of, of learnings in a very unfortunate way of like, oh shit, we really didn't think about that. Or, oh, we really didn't secure that. Or there's no backup plan for XYZ thing. Like there are so many moments of that, that getting to this point, I really had my doubts, but yeah, regardless no, I mean, wow. I had my doubts, but the thing that kept me going was, you know, the tarot card readers on, on TikTok. Mm. <laughs> Everyone loves well, this bit. I thought, you know, for a while, then popping up, it was maybe about like my dating life or something. But no, it was about this, like this coming to fruition for me. And for we, them, you know, I'm eternally grateful. Speaking of dating, do we have any conspiracy boy updates? It's not that I don't want to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just know that RFK was brought up and that's all. Mm-hmm. Say less, say no more. Yeah. I, I just, I, again, it's sick and twisted. I don't know why I, I attract this type of energy into my life, but I'm, I'm going to go see someone to get this energy <laughs> cleared. 
<laughs> I think I'm cursed. Like it's I wish I had the words to describe like but there's the no way to like vet it. it beforehand. You know, it's just like why does it and maybe this is a broader conversation. You know, there's news coming out now about how like younger men are skewing to be more conservative. Like right. and I feel like I am the perfect if anyone wants to talk to me and be like, what are you seeing amongst young men and your demographic and age? I'd be like, well, let me tell you, because I go on dates regularly and they all end up being some type of a conservative or conspiracy theorist. And, you know, it's a problem and we need to get to the bottom of it because no, a thousand percent. Well, we're going to be in trouble. If we I, well, I have two comments and one is like to that study that came out. I'm very curious, like, like question mark for all of those parents and households out there, especially the moms. It's like, how are we slipping backwards here? Like what's going on? What's the conversation? Which leads me to like a second point on that, which might be like the marketing cult that is Trump and Andrew Tate and like how marketing is so powerful. Even the Joe Rogan of it all. You know, I've also been having thoughts about Barstool and just how like Barstool is so sneaky about their kind of like their undertones of like well, misogyny. And now they like, you know, they have, first of all, they have, I don't think a single person of color and Barstool, not one. I can't think of any. Can you? If there is, it's in the sports section of things that I obviously, we know. I don't, don't touch. Don't touch. They have a few yeah, like right. women's, women's led podcasts and influencers in their, in their, on their roster. And then they have, you know, the two gay guys who I am, I'm obsessed with, Joey Camasto. It's hilarious. Yeah. But they have this weird kind of like facade smoke and mirrors thing happening where it's like they're trying to be less problematic and less like men centric, but they still are. Like they had, I saw they had this clip of like one of their main like podcast dudes. They had like some podcast where it was like an open debate on like Barbie with some of the girls who work at Barstool. And it's just like, it was just such an unfair, like one-sided, I don't know. It's like, you're going to put this girl who like probably doesn't, isn't very versed in like debating like feminism and against the patriarchy to like, you know, properly or like do it justice against this yeah. like dude who already has the entire Barstool audience probably on his side because the majority of them are men. Like, just like the way I think that they kind of sneaky, like reinforce some of these totally I don't know ideals and everything it's problematic and yeah I mean the other thing that's got to be so interesting is to kind of like dive in to seeing what some of these men's like for you pages consist of because there's all this like niche content that like weirdly trickles into like conservatism and misogyny I don't know it's just so interesting to see what kind of content and media men young men consume these days it's so weird some of it is like so wacky and it's stuff that like obviously for the two of us we would flip past so quickly that we just i think it's like that personal element where you go no one would ever pay attention to that and then you realize now but when i was putting together viral today there is a study that was put out by i believe meta but you know so take it with a grain of salt but the stat that was in it was that basically like conservatives are like 97% more likely or something along those lines to see false news on their algorithm and feed. And then 
Meta, through their study, tried to say that it's not the algorithm and that we compare. Ooh, like, but it's not it was like so bizarre. I was like, yeah. okay, so it is, but it's not. Like, what? Yeah. And what is the, what is accounting for the difference between mm-hmm. seeing real news or fake news on someone that skews liberal versus someone that skews conservative? But it's like, I don't know. And I think to your point, yeah, it's like it's so much of it's like so niche too. Or not, let me let me pull that back. Not necessarily niche, but it doesn't necessarily on its face. Like, it's not like the headline is, we hate women. But no. it's like everything like said in it. Yeah. Undertones and reinforcement and like all of that. Sorry, Jack Smith is popping up on my screen right now. Giving his little Is he hot or is he old? He's probably old. He's he's like middle aged. He's yeah. a beard. So we know I'm not. But he's a good looking guy. Let he's definitely good looking guy. <laughs> and pretty decent hairline for his age. So credit. I would like to see him without oh. the beard. He, you know yeah no i mean he's a little too old for me but if he were our age no beard and is six foot yeah, plus was... i would definitely i would definitely consider it sure yeah look i like smart guys so i'm here well, for that we there was something else i was gonna say along oh the dating thing i want to see what the guys like if these are dating app guys i want to see what their profiles are because i feel like i'm pretty good at vetting like they're no, not holding I'm fish or dead deer like i you would never you, you would never guess and that's why i think it it, it plays into a bigger conversation about men yeah. age and like where their heads are at with politics and social issues and because a lot of them it's like again it's it's just kind of like this weird dangerous thing because they're not blatantly misogynistic and they probably don't even intend to be or don't want to be and don't believe in that but they don't realize that the things they consume and like some of the ways that they look at the world and see the world like do have undertones of that and like it's not blatant but like that's kind of what makes it a little dangerous is because it's like hard to explain does that make any sense no, I know what you're trying to say like it's you can't just call it out. I mean, you can call it out, but it's not like it's not so black and white. Is it, it just take, like the like, call out? Like so it's not like much unlearning and like deep, deep learning that like nobody has time for. So it's like dangerous. Anyways, what a fucking tangent. What well, we can cap oh it there, but we do have a guest today, per usual, an amazing one, an amazing topic to get into that is very relevant given our nasty supreme court so please samantha can you do the honors and introduce our iconic guest today oh my god you guys are gonna be obsessed (laughs) with him because we are and we will be having him back on the show like it's just like one of those things like we're also we well you guys will see we're also launching a merch line together well not really but like we want to we're obsessed with him I should probably tell you guys like who this actually is. It's Dr. Sean Harper and he's a professor at USC. He's the head of USC's Race and Equity Center. And we're talking all about affirmative action, obviously post what happened with the Supreme Court, where policies are going to go, how this affects things. Of course, also too, we like drill it back to like what affirmative action is in the first place and what its impacts were, was it successful or not? So we give a little bit of background history, get into the weeds there. And then we talk about sort of where things are headed and what to expect going going forward. Like I already said, like we want to have back on. So if you guys have more questions listening to this episode, you're like, wait a second, but what about da, 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 da? let us know. Hit us in the DMs. We'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. But 
Regardless, without further ado, here is Dr. Sean Harper. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. If you work in the political space, listen up. Here at Girl on the Gov, we have built our whole business around effectively marketing political messaging through digital media. And we want to help you do the same. We have a full digital media consulting menu these days tailored specifically to the political space. Number one, hashtag viral. It is our paid social media newsletter that comes straight to your inbox every Tuesday. If you've ever thought uh, this meeting could have been an email, this newsletter is for you. We give basics to best practices, platform updates, and the content ideas you need to go hashtag viral. And for offering number two, if you want some one-on-one face-to-face attention, we offer that too. We provide social media audits and consulting to help you achieve the conversions and engagement you've been hoping for from your social media content. And number three, in our newest edition, Podcast Consulting, we are the minds behind this gorgeous political podcast for young voters that we've been running for two and a half years now. So we know a thing or two about how not only to get a podcast off the ground, but how to grow an audience. We provide podcast consulting for anyone trying to get their podcast started or provide podcast audits for those who have started their pod but want to see it take off. Podcasting is a great new in-house digital media marketing tool and a great way for any candidate elected or org to amplify their work and their voice. So head to girlinthegov.com slash consulting to learn more about our services and to sign up for hashtag viral to start slaying the beast that is digital media. Skeptical about custom beauty? I get it. My feed is flooded with customized this and personalized that, all promising to fix my split ends and my dry skin and all of the things. But when pros says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. And your formula literally couldn't exist without you. Each and every bottle of pros custom hair care and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals, and they get personal. Pros covers everything from diet, exercise, and stress levels to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They even asked me about, you know, where I live, the water hardiness that I have coming from my shower, UV index, all of the things. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. And I know from experience, one-of-a-kind formulas equal one-in-a-million results. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed that my hair is definitely fuller. I have thinner hair that just like will not hold a curl or stay voluminous. And ever since using pros, that has changed. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering an exclusive trial offer. So you can see the difference custom care can make. 
50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash girlandgov. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash G-I-R-L-A-N-D-G-O-V for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash girlandgov. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, hello, Dr. Sean Harper. Welcome to Girl in the Gulf, the podcast. We are so excited to have you. I am so excited to be here. Thanks. We have so much to get into. And first and foremost, you're the head of USC's Race and Equity Center. And we need to get the tea, the tea, as I say, on what you guys do, what everything's about. Can you run us through, you know, what you guys do there? Of course, I love spilling tea, especially about the center that I founded 12 years ago at the University of Pennsylvania and moved with me six years ago when I joined the faculty at the University of Southern California. The USC's Race and Equity Center's mission is to illuminate, disrupt, and dismantle racism in all its forms, which we understand is a massive undertaking. We work Mm -hmm. with K-12 school districts, colleges and universities, as well as businesses, government agencies, and nonprofits across a range of sectors. Over the lifespan of the center, we've had the privilege of working with more than 700 organizations. So we do all sorts of professional learning around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We do research and assessment. And we also do a lot of executive coaching of leaders in each of those domains. It's amazing. We'd love to hear it. And super curious too, like what kind of brought you to this line of work? Like what's kind of the personal story there of like the catalyst of breaking into all of this? Yeah. Well, I am going to take you back 42 years. I am 47 now, but no. as of yes, I know. But as a five-year-old growing up in rural South Georgia, Thomasville, Georgia is my birthplace. I noticed very early on, perhaps as young as five years old, that our town was incredibly segregated racially. Most of the Black people, including my family, were extraordinarily poor, and most of the white people were middle class or affluent. I knew as a five-year-old that my people were not poor because we wanted to be. I also knew that we were not poor because we were lazy. My mother at the time was a housekeeper who cleaned white people's homes. She certainly was not lazy. That was backbreaking work, right? I also knew as a curious five-year-old that we Black people were not poor because we were stupid or that we lacked, you know, intellectual acumen. Obviously, as a five-year-old, I did not have the cognitive resources to make sense of the racial stratification that I was seeing in my hometown. But I knew that something was up with it. 
And I've been on a lifelong journey ever since to more deeply understand the undercurrents of racism and racial inequity and racial stratification and so on. Uh, but not only to understand it, but to also then create policy strategies and practical strategies and so on to disrupt it. So that is my origin story. And I have brought that story with me to the founding of the center and now, you know, through these 12 years of the center's work. It is so interesting what you can observe and take in as a little kid. I like, I always think just kids too are so underestimated, like what they're able to observe and like what they really like take in and understand. And I just, and what also too, then continues to sort of not impact you as an adult, but like really lead your charge. You know, it's just, I don't know. I've always found that just so interesting, like what you can sort of observe then and what you take from it. And those like little patterns that I think adults definitely underestimate kids in that way for Sure. Except for when it comes to first ones, they're, they're aware that like every kid is going to like copy that, but outside of that, <laughs> well, I know that some of your work takes us to the topic of affirmative action, which has been naturally a hot topic this summer before that too. That is one of the big, you know, topics I learned about in my gov classes, my legal classes and whatnot, but it's one that so many people have questions on or don't really seem to understand sometimes not the fault of themselves. So I think to start things off, what is affirmative action and how is it applied? Sure. So just a little bit of history lesson here. U.S. President John F. Kennedy introduced the term affirmative action in a civil rights speech that he delivered on the campus of Howard University, a historically Black university in Washington, D.C. That term was soon followed by elaborate plans to remedy the problem of persistent and exclusionary practices in all facets of American life, from housing to business, government, employment, and education. In 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson officially brought Kennedy's vision to fruition with the signing of Executive Order 11246, which required federal contractors to increase the number of minority employees as an affirmative step is what they called it at the time to remedy years of exclusion. So, you know, these were these sort of 1960s era uh, attempts to right the past wrongs in every sector of, of American society. And what really was like the purpose of, of affirmative action, like from the jump? It was to acknowledge that people of color and women had been excluded through policy and certainly through practice from, you know, government contracts, from, you know, being hired across various sectors and so on. So, you know, it was really a policy attempt to put pressure on employers to stop discriminating against women and people of color. Right. Well, I'm curious too, did it work? Like what would be sort of the takeaway from getting some of these, you know, policies in place? Like, and what is like the vantage on affirmative action? Was it a success or meh? Sure. There's been a bit of an up and down 
ebb and flow, if you will, with affirmative action. You know, certainly in the 1970s, you know, we began to see the first wave of people of color and women be more represented in, you know, state and federal government jobs, a little bit in the corporate sector, and certainly a bit more at predominantly white colleges and universities. So in that way, yes, it worked. It, it, it helped to desegregate or even accelerate the desegregation that the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education legislation was intended, you know, to engender for educational institutions. So, you know, there was that first sort of injection, but then, you know, over the years, there's been a, a, an up and down with the success of affirmative action uh, policies and practices. There's certainly have been lots of legal battles against it as white Americans have claimed reverse discrimination. So, you know, every time there's one of these court cases, you know, many people tend to, many organizations tend to sort of pull back their affirmative action efforts because they're afraid that they're going to get sued. So in that way, you know, it, it, it contributes to the down periods where we see affirmative action not working so well. Mm, that's interesting. I'm also curious to like, what are the typical kind of like arguments for and against? I think, you know, you touched on it, but I also feel like there's been kind of some discourse and back and forth, maybe in like recent years, even like from kind of both sides having arguments for and against it. And I'm curious what those, what, what those are, what those look like. Yeah. Well, the arguments for, let's start at a positive place here. The <laughs> arguments for have been that we need policy levers and policy remedies to help ensure that our workforces remain diverse and become, in some instances, even become diverse, right? Like there's so many industries that had no diversity at all pre-affirmative action. So, you know, one of the arguments is that it can help hold organizations accountable for diversity. Another argument is that diversity is good for organizations and ultimately for our democracy, and that this is a policy that can help ensure that not only places are diverse, but that our economy benefits from that diversity. The research is irrefutably clear here that organizations that are diverse are higher performing and that they position the United States of America to compete globally, you know, against other companies, you know, on the innovation stage, right? So, you know, those are some of the, 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 the pros, right? Some of the cons that people argue really is that, you know, affirmative action policies have been believed to discriminate against white people. You know, folks have not understood the flaw in the zero-sum game logic there, right? The flaw there is that just because something is being done to accelerate women and people of color, it doesn't necessarily entail discrimination against white right. people. Two things can simultaneously concur or occur rather. But yet, you know, there's just this 
this this misbelief that white people are discriminated against because of this particular policy. The level of like insanity, <laughs> I could go off for hours, days, potentially weeks. Just the idea of like a white person being discriminated against is like an SNL skit in my mind. The way in yeah. which someone could get themselves I, I mean, I see because of I spend too much time on TikTok how some wackadoodles get themselves there. But it doesn't somehow it doesn't stop being a brain blast where I'm like, oh my God, how did brain we get blast. here again? It just wackadoodle and brain blast. Brain blast. So, yeah, I can't turn in two words. I don't I don't speak English or speak in weird phrases. I really think like I need to yeah. find a name for my language at some point. But regardless of that, it's beyond me. And I guess my question, if we're going to like create like at least just like a dictionary bank of things is like, what is reverse discrimination? It doesn't even exist. It does not exist. Okay. I recently wrote a Forbes article about reverse discrimination or so-called reverse discrimination. And in it, I posed the question, is it reverse discrimination against white people or is it racial equity? You know, there's a difference between equality and equity. Equality entails doing the exact same thing for everybody, giving everybody the exact same, you know, resources and so on. Well, in many workplaces and in many higher education institutions, white people don't need additional advantages or additional resources, right? Because of generational wealth, because of legacy admissions and, mm -hmm. you know, other kinds of things that have historically and contemporarily advantaged white families. So they don't need the same thing, the same sorts of corrective actions right. that need to be taken for, for people of color. So, you know, there's just a, 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 a misunderstanding of, of reverse discrimination. Here, I'll give you one example that I offered in the Forbes article and it comes from a company that I recently worked with where the leadership team of this particular company, so we're talking the CEO and the C-suite executives were overwhelmingly white. I mean, like, like very, very, very white, almost entirely, right? Not only were they almost entirely white, but there never been a Latino person in executive level leadership there. So one senior vice president of this company retired, and I was advising the CEO on how to ensure that that particular vacancy that was created by that retirement, you know, be used as an opportunity to diversify the leadership team. The CEO was totally on board with it. So what we decided is that that CEO would, and I would help, identify some incredibly, irrefutably talented executive level Latino leaders from other companies whom the CEO could go and recruit. Is that reverse discrimination against white people? No, because the whole leadership team is darn near all white anyway. Yeah, like never you had your time. A Latino <laughs> person, right? So, yeah. you know, by not posting the position, but instead going out and targeting, you know, a, a very accomplished Latino person 
That is an example of affirmative action done legally and done well. Mm-hmm. And I love that distinction between like equality and equity too. I think that is what's what's so lost upon people is it's like really just understanding like what privilege even is and how like as a white person you're like born on second third base and you know you can't just have everyone then play by the same rules of under equality like it does that equity piece and that distinction is so important i think in understanding like this topic as a whole so i really love that distinction but definitely want to get into the supreme court case because of course big summer big summer for the supreme court once again uh-huh. and yeah but we want to kind of hear about this case a little bit around affirmative action and some background like that led up to the big, scary, spooky decision that was made. Yeah, so a conservative group, Students for Fair Admissions, filed a lawsuit against the University of North Carolina, as well as against Harvard University, claiming discrimination against white applicants and Asian American applicants. And, you know, those two cases made their way all the way to the Supreme Court, on January or June, rather, on June 29th, the Supreme Court deemed race conscious admissions practices unconstitutional. They determined that the use of race as a variable in the admissions process violates the Constitution. <laughs> so ultimately, conservatives won on, on this. It's so wild how just so many of these cases, it's like one bad apple really does spoil the bunch. And granted, it's also been the Republican strategy for now decades at this point is to like push something through the courts, knowing that it's going to get to their majority at the Supreme Court and is going to try and rule in their favor. It's a smart strategy, but obviously has not sort of worked in our favor, obviously progressive podcasts, you know where we stand on this stuff. But regardless, Looking at the specific impacts here, where has this, you know, this ruling impacted people of color, minorities already, and where can we expect it to, you know, sort of continue impact-wise? Yeah, great question. Before I talk about the impact on people of color, one thing that we have not yet talked about that is such an important acknowledgement, over its lifespan, affirmative action has benefited white women the most. And I don't mean like, it's like really close. I mean, by (laughs) a long shot, by a long shot, white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action, right? So, you know, it's important for us to think about, you know, all the groups who will be negatively impacted by the recent SCOTUS ruling. Some predictions that I can very comfortably make I made them in a different Forbes article that is titled Supreme Court Ends Affirmative Action in College Admissions. Here's what will happen next on campuses. And I think I offer maybe eight or 10 predictions. You know, I'll lift up just a couple here. One thing that we will absolutely see, especially at the most highly selective private and public universities around the country, we will see a measurable decline in the representation of students of color across most racial groups. 
but the effect will be most devastating to Black students. Why would I say such a thing? Why would I make such a grim prediction? Well, it's because we've seen this particular movie before. Mm, In 1996, California voters, through the passage of Prop 209, outlawed affirmative action in college admissions in the state of California. And, you know, by extension, that also led to the banning of affirmative action in hiring practices and so on, right? We have seen in the University of California system a sharp decline in the representation of Black students. Let's take UCLA, for example, which is currently tied with UC Berkeley for as the number one public institution in the country. At UCLA in 2006, so exactly one decade after the passage of Prop 209, there were 96 Black freshmen in the incoming class. 96 at UCLA. Out of an incoming class of more than 4,800 freshmen, 96 of them were Black. And a disproportionate share of those Black students were student-athletes, right? Mm. So where in other states where we've seen state-level affirmative action bans, certainly California was one of them, uh, but there were also nine other states beyond California where there were state-level bans before the SCOTUS ban. We've seen a decrease in students of color and most especially a decrease in, in Black students. So... That's going to be one devastating effect. One piece of good news here. I love good news. This is good news, I think. As a very proud alumnus of Albany State, a historically Black university in Albany, Georgia, we will see an increase in the number of Black applicants to public and private HBCUs. I think that is a good thing. I want to make really clear, though, that HBCUs are not and never have been a dumpster for Black students who could not get into other institutions. So I I don't want listeners to misunderstand it as, well, yeah, they can't get into, you know, other colleges and universities like Harvard and Princeton. So therefore, they're ending up at Spelman, Albany State, and Morehouse. That's not that's not exactly it. But what what will happen is that HBCUs have always been an open door for really smart, incredibly talented Black students. As other institutions now slam the door in the faces of those incredibly qualified, talented Black students, Oogaloo College, Fisk University. Hampton University, and all the other HBCUs will continue to do what they've always done. So that is that is good news. There will be a place. There'll be lots of places mm-hmm. for Black students to go. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so wild to that we live in this world now where like affirmative action no longer exists anymore. It's just really crazy to think about. And pretty, pretty devastating. And I'm curious, like what are kind of the next steps after this decision? Like what, 
around affirmative action, around what it what it looks like? Is it all just like kind of private institutions and companies get to decide if they implement policies like it? Like what what are kind of what's this world gonna look like moving forward? Yeah. Okay. So more good news. Okay. Actually. Good. The Supreme Court announced this ruling on a Thursday morning. 26 hours later, the USC Race and Equity Center hosted a national forum that we title Affirmative Reaction. Mm -hmm. And it was all about what colleges and universities can legally do in a post-affirmative action era. Mm -hmm. More than 3,300 people showed up for that national forum. That's awesome. With only a 26 hour, you know, sort of runway to, to the event. So in it, I offer numerous legally permissible ways forward. There are legally permissible ways forward for institutions that are truly serious about maintaining a diverse student body. One of those things for example, is to cast a wider net in the recruitment of students of color broadly and Black students most especially. So in the forum, I suggested that institutions that want Black students, that they stop going to just the same two or three supplier high schools, mm -hmm. um, but instead that they do what football coaches do at major Division One. uh football powerhouses, like the one at which I work, USC. Right. USC has won more, uh, we have more Heisman Trophy winners than any other uh, place in the country, for example. We have several football national championships. You see, the football coaches at places like USC and University of Michigan and Florida State and so on, they don't wait to see who applies mm -hmm. to be on the football team. It doesn't work that way. They send out scouts all across the country to scout talent, right? Mm -hmm. They go and they sit in the living rooms of Black families and attempt to convince them to send their athletically gifted Black son to one of these places where they're going to make billions of dollars on his back, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what if college admissions officers upped their recruitment game in that way, right? To ensure that there is a larger cadre of highly qualified, talented Black applicants. So that was one thing. Another thing that I feel really, really, really strongly about, institutions that are serious about diversifying their student bodies must discontinue their reliance on standardized entrance exams. Even the test makers themselves admit that those standardized entrance exams tell us very little about how a student is likely to perform beyond the first semester or first year at an institution, mm -hmm. right? But yet, we continue, we being colleges and universities, to rely on exams that privilege students who come from particular zip codes, who come from highly educated two-family homes, who come from generational wealth, 
right? Overwhelmingly, those very privileged, high-scoring test takers are white. But yet, there's so many talented students of color who, despite not having those advantages, still perform extraordinarily well Mm -hmm. at colleges and universities. Look, I know this is getting long. Let me just say, right? In another Forbes article, I dispelled a myth. So there's a myth, right, that, well, if you do away with the SAT and the ACT and the LSAT and the GRE and the GMAT and all these other tests, that it's going to lead to unqualified people of color who can't do the work. Well, my analyses show, and these are analyses of data from the U.S. Department of Education, so they're (laughs) legit. They're legit. In this Forbes article, I wrote about the statistical fact, it's irrefutable, that Black students at Harvard and Princeton graduate at a higher rate than students overall at Harvard and Princeton. At Yale, it's the exact same. Black students graduate at the exact same percentage as everybody else at Yale. Right. So, you know, it dispels this myth that, oh, these unqualified black students and students of color are getting into these elite institutions and they can't do the work. No. At Harvard and Princeton, they graduate at even a higher number than everybody else. Right. It is a myth that we definitely contend with. And I can say definitively that fuck these tests because I have so many SAT horror stories I can't even begin to tell you. Not a good test taker. Uh, almost screwed up my like third time taking it. Like had to get hand like graded, whatever. But I also but you're, think but you're the- so but you're so obviously a genius. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant beyond brilliant. I look, Einstein, I'm giving him a run for his money. Okay. Like guys just like waiting for me to catch up. But regardless of my genius, is just the fact that also these tests are super cost prohibitive. The tutor, the prep class, right? Then also taking the test, also applying to college. Every single college you apply to, you have an application fee. The college makes so much money off of that. So like not just like all the tests, but all the prep work, all the things that go into it. Like, of course, they're going to bring us down to a really small group of people who can afford to play the game. Like, yeah, yeah. that actually like is, is raises an interesting point too. that a question that I was thinking of too, is in the same breath of this summer and SCOTUS and all the things, student debt relief and how that kind of like, just like, see, it's just so interesting that those two things like came kind of crashing down at the same time. And I'm curious your take of like how, you know, that not being a possibility anymore and a pathway for people is also going to be kind of prohibitive as far as like how we get more diverse students into college because there are so many barriers. So I don't know. I'm just curious like to your your take on how that also kind of got stripped away in the same breath. Yeah. Uh, before we go there, let me just say that I think we should start a business together, the three of us. It should be <laughs> a parallel, an apparel line that says, fuck these tests. I love it. Let's do <laughs> yes. it. Yes. So we can we have our next merch line. Yeah. Genuinely, we're like thinking about like what our next merch launch is going to be. So I guess, look, sold to the highest bidder. We got it. Okay. All right. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, we're bringing um, you in. But let's let's do talk for a moment about the, the student debt relief. So look, 
I am a beacon of good news. You I know, love despite, this. This is rare, despite, by the way. We we don't despite get all of the darkness, right? Of these yeah. of these two Supreme Court decisions. Here's what I will say: the Biden administration is making a way, despite the SCOTUS ruling. You know, mm-hmm. there are three or four other strategies in their playbook to provide as much debt relief to as many Americans as possible. So it's been really refreshing to see the U.S. Department of Education, you know, announce, you know, the first the first play in that playbook, you know, just days after the Supreme Court struck down, you know, the original Biden administration attempt. So I think that's good news. Here's more good news for highly selective universities like mine. The University of Southern California, our most admit our most recent admissions rate was just over 9%, which means that we rejected 91% of the people who applied. That is not a point of pride for me as a person who cares about college access. I don't like mm-hmm. rejecting people, but here's what I will at least say about putting sort of the, the affirmative action ruling in conversation with the student debt relief. Low-income students who come to the University of Southern California accrue very little to no debt, right? Because of our incredibly robust financial aid packages for students uh, who come from families below a particular income threshold. It's a serious point of pride for our university that we have so many students who are first in their families uh, to attend college who are at USC. So we need more wealthy private universities like mine to step up with the dollars to ensure that deserving low-income white students and low-income students of color have college access. But we also need state and federal policymakers to also increase that kind of aid and those kinds of programs for folks to attend public institutions Mm -hmm. that don't have the wealth of a Duke or a Stanford or a USC, right? Like we need, you know, state legislators and federal policymakers to, to, to also increase those. uh, Yeah. Yeah. As someone that gets hit up by their school all the time for funds and then doesn't know, first of all, I don't donate because I paid enough as it is. But second of all, like, sorry, but I'm like, where is the money going? Like, show me, show me the scholarship, show me something like it better be not for a brick in front of the library. Like, come on now, people. So anyways, another rant for another day. But it leads me to sort of our last question as I know we're on a little bit of a time time scale here. But what about legacy admissions? How does that play in? Obviously, that's been an interesting conversation the last few weeks with a few schools saying, see you later, legacy admissions, we're done with you. How does that play in here? Yeah, I'm so glad that we're ending with this really important question. I wrote yet another Forbes article. So by the way, Forbes ambassador, here we are. (laughs) Yeah, My Forbes articles are open access. All people have to do is just Google my first and last name, S-H-A-U-N, Harper and Forbes. And it'll take you to my Forbes author page where the whole catalog is. In this particular article, I talked about a a new lawsuit against Harvard. You know, there are these these three organizations and others who 
have filed a complaint to the U.S. Department of Education alleging that Ivy League schools systematically violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by privileging children of donors as well as wealthy alumni in its annual student selection process. And, you know, it's really fascinating. In the article, I acknowledge that last year, Harvard's overall acceptance rate was 3.2%. That's really low. It's a really low acceptance rate, 3.2%. But if you were an applicant who was the child of a donor, it was 42% for you. If you were an applicant whose family went to Harvard, it was 34% for you, right? 42% for donors, 34% for legacies, only 3.2% for everybody else. You know, that's insane. Those donors and those alumni, they're overwhelmingly white. So therefore, you know, these legacy admissions policies and practices are just reproducing and exacerbating racial inequity that systematically disadvantage. It's affirmative action for them. It is totally affirmative action. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Bay between those numbers is insane. insane. It's not that it surprises me, but still, it's just always like when you like really hear it out there, it's like, wow. Well, hopefully there are maybe some action items, things people can do, maybe pressing their school to end legacy admissions. You know, my alumni office will definitely be getting themselves a nice email. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, they're pretty annoying. Maybe not so nice. Regardless, they're getting an email. So that's my action item. Are there any others that people can do sort of in this post-affirmative action world that, you know, they can do to sort of like fill the gaps here? And where people can find you. That. And we'll also be linking the Forbes section, obviously. Thank you. People can find me on Twitter. I'm still there. Oh, my <laughs> God. Blessings. <laughs> um, yeah, people can find me at Dr. Sean Harper on both Twitter and threads. And certainly folks can go to race.usc.edu. It will take you to the USC Race and Equity Center's website where we continue to, you know, upload tons of resources and guidance for institutions with things that they can in fact legally do. So we're going to continue to you know, fight the good fight, despite, you know, the parameters that have been set by the Supreme Court. All right. There's still tons of things that can be legally done. Mm -hmm. That's so good to know. I love you're one of our first guests to give all of the kind of positive spins on things, which we just appreciate. So thank you. And thank you for coming on and explaining all of this and answering all our questions. We really appreciate you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to get our apparel line going. Yeah, same. (laughs) We'll we'll be in touch. Yes. All right. (laughs) 